in life, you can't have everything that you want. You can't. You can't just, you know, I want this, I want that, I want this. You, you can't. But if there is something that you want badly enough, if there is something you need to have, whether it's you're struggling with your child, you're struggling with a relationship, you're struggling in business, making whatever it is. If you put your laser focus on it and make that your cause in life, you can have it. So I always say to my somebody when they say I can't do something or I, I want to do this, I always ask them the following question, which you should ask yourself, which is how badly do you want it? If you want something badly enough, you can make anything happen for yourself. Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, Episode 533. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm thrilled that you're here to join us today. And I'm, I guess that wouldn't really be fair. I'm equally thrilled to introduce you to our guest today, Matt Sweetwood. Matt is a consultant, coach, speaker, and author, and he just released his first book. Is it your first book, Matt? It is my first book. Leader of the Pack, but... Listeners, you've heard enough about me with my five kids. I mean, I think they contributed just about every single solo episode. But Matt went from disaster to success as a single dad of five. I can't even imagine. And there's so much more in there. So Matt, I'm looking forward to you sharing more of your story. But welcome. Hello, Kim. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here today. You know, I'm really feeling positive today, which is you know, perfect timing for your podcast. Oh, that that's totally perfect timing. I'm positive, but I'm pooped. I think we're recording this on a Friday, listeners. And this week has been amazing. But have you noticed that entrepreneurship can be equally, if not more exhausting sometimes? Well, you know what they say, they say we work 80 hours so that we don't have to work 40. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know what was happening in Ohio yesterday. But our internet went out for about four hours and it was, it took me about 20 minutes, even affected data on my phone. It took 20 minutes to pull up a map showing an, a great big outage in the area. So I got up at 4.30. Listeners, you know, I tell you to get your sleep, but I had to get some stuff done this morning. But yeah. 4.30? I don't think I've ever been up at 4.30. I think that maybe, I can honestly say never. Yeah, usually I even sleep right through the alarm, but it was one of those days that an email had to get out on time or else I'd hear about it for the whole rest of the day. So Your internet was out for four hours. I mean, I would need therapy after that. I would need some counseling. I wouldn't make it. I probably wouldn't make it. Yeah, I was just glad that it didn't happen after my littles got home because, yes, I do rely on electronic babysitters more than I probably should. Well, so just so you know, I, you know, I raised my kids, you know, in that same, you know, in the young phase 20 years ago. And while there wasn't really an internet uh, babysitter, there was something called a PlayStation babysitter. And I am equally guilty of sticking every shape, form, size of PlayStation and Nintendo in the hands of my children to keep me sane. Yes, Actually, my stepmother said that she, there were some weekends when I would go out to spend the weekend with my dad and stepmom that they were looking forward to me getting there because my little brother would just latch on to me 
and we would play video games for the whole weekend and it would give her some peace. Yeah. It's, so, you know, we fall on these crutches as parents and that's probably why, you know, in my case, I've raised millennials and all the problems of the world are now I'm, I'm joking. My kids are actually amazing. They survived the PlayStation, you know, parenting technique and they're doing great. So I can't, I can't. So maybe it's a better parenting technique. I don't know. Well, my husband took that parenting technique and actually became a video game designer. So, you know, I think if I had done that, I would be my children's hero. I'm a little jealous right now. I should have taken that tack. My kids would be so much closer to me. They would love me so much more. Well, our five-year-old keeps on saying to him, when are you going to finish my game? When are you going to finish my game? <laughs> oh, he's really game for him. Oh, my gosh. Because, of course, it's for her, right. you know, because that's what she yeah. would assume. Yeah. I mean, all I did was play baseball with him. I mean, I can't, I can't compete with that. I mean, come on. It amazes me, the patience, but I did teach her how to drive Mario Kart. So, but enough about me, Matt. I want to hear more of your story, and I'm sure the listeners do as well. I want to know what disaster looked like. Because, I mean, sometimes there are days when just being alone with my five kids can be considered a disaster, especially if there's cooking involved, and how you turned it all around. Okay, so since we have, you know, about two or three hours on this podcast, I'll give you the long version of the story. No, just kidding. Of course, we'll give, you the, we'll give you the quick version. So obviously, I'll start by saying you can find out the whole story if you read my book, Leader of the Pack. You know, that's where I talk about how I turn things from disaster to success in my business and for myself and, you know, and for my kids. So my story really centers around getting married at an early age and having five kids right away. You know, we talked about it uh, actually before we got on. I, they were eight years spaced apart and uh, I was running a business uh, here in the Northeast in the New York area, New Jersey, a successful business. And it looked like I had kind of, you know, this American dream life. I had a very pretty wife. And running a business I had built, it was a small business when I started, we were doing really, really well. It's a photographic supply business. And then, I mean, things were not exactly right, but I had my head in the sand. And then eventually it collapsed when my wife, the mother of my five kids, left us. She actually, you know, had exhibited very difficult, I'll use the word difficult because we want to make this about her, difficult behavior, you know, for a substantial period of time, which I hid from everybody. I denied it myself and so on. And kind of in a very ugly way, she slowly moved out of the house over a couple of months and then was gone. And the only time I really saw her from that point on was uh, when she visited me in the court system, trying to take me for every penny that I had. I ended up with one of the longest divorces in New Jersey history. I had a side matter which came out of this which went to the Supreme Court, a case I eventually won. And I ended up with five little kids. When she left, the youngest was 18 months and the oldest was eight. I was bankrupt. The kids were in very, very bad shape, as you can imagine when a mother acts in that way and leaves. And so that's what I call disaster. Oh, wait, yeah. let me add on to that. At that time, my business had started to take a turn for the worse. Photographic businesses had many, many ups and downs in the business, mostly downs. It's a very tricky business with digital technology and, you know, stores going at small stores going out of business and so on. So I was in a mess. Oh, wait, one more thing. When she left, I was actually, I'm five foot 10. I was 300 pounds. So I was really overweight. So I was overweight, bankrupt, had five little kids to take care of, was in this horrible divorce that you couldn't even imagine. And I had no idea what I was doing. That's full disaster, I would say, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, just a bit. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I looked at my kids. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I was supposed to be the parent that, you know, like the traditional role, because we're talking back in the late 80s. You know, I was supposed to go off to work and earn the money and she was supposed to take care of the kids. And I was supposed to throw the football with them and take them out to, uh, you know, Applebee's on the weekend. That was dad's job, you know, and, and I was raised by a father, you know, who had nothing to do with child care. I always joke his closest contact with the diaper was when they made a mistake and put a Pampers commercial on during the football game. So, <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. So, you know, I, I came from sort of this, you know, old fashioned mode. So I'm with these five little kids. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've got a 20 year jail sentence. My business is failing. The court system's coming after me. What I, I, I like I had this fantasy I was going to travel to Hawaii and take up surfing and just kind of disappear. Oh, I still have that fantasy. Yeah, actually, you know, I've been to Hawaii. The food there is really just not making it for me. I'm sorry. Hawaii is a beautiful place. But after living in New York and New Jersey and eating the food here, I don't know. I just can't. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, don't, I, I, don't move to Ohio then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I miss New York food. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have it pretty good here. So I looked at the situation. You know, I wanted to run away. But then, you know, you sit there and you look at your children. And these little, they were all, all five of them are blonde haired and blue eyed. They're just like I used to be. Now I only have blue eyes because the hair's all gone. Yeah. But they looked up at me and, you know, with those, like, dad, save us. You love your children. So you take kind of a deep breath and you slowly start to figure out how to make this work. And you stay up 18 hours a day and you go to work and you fix your work and you, try to fix the kids and over a couple of years and fighting in courts and, and surviving and putting myself into shape and doing all of the things, I eventually got the situation, you know, somewhat under control. In the end, I ended up reinventing my business several times along the way to save it. The kids eventually got themselves together. You know, now each one has his own story uh, through the way I eventually got myself together and we're sitting here today, you know, 20 years or whatever it is later, and all five of my kids, they're all grown up. They're all in their 20s. They're all super successful. All have gone to top schools, talking about Columbia and Northwestern and Elliott School of International Affairs and Baruch College here in Manhattan. I just had my youngest daughter graduate magna cum laude from Pace, and she's working for a big financial institution, and they're all really well-adjusted, wonderful people. They all have, so except my youngest has significant others, which they have good relationships with, and you know, it's got a happy ending. I sold my business, and I'm going through the whole story fast for you, and then we can sort of dissect it and sold my business in the end, and now I'm living large in Manhattan, enjoying the love of my children and the life here. Amazing. Amazing. Congratulations. Great job, Dad. I want to know what reinventing your business three times looks like. Yeah. So first of all, you said great job, Dad. I really want to stop because I hate taking credit. I really want you to know that I was the only thing that I can take credit for is being present. In other words, I didn't mm. run away, you know, which I certainly could have. I didn't run away. I stayed there. I did try my best, which always sometimes wasn't good enough. But I really believe that divine intervention came into play here. And somehow my kids turned out okay because they could have been the ones, you know, walking into a temple and shooting people. They could have been, you know, when the mother leaves and, 
you're in this kind of circumstance, you know, things can go really wrong. And I feel so blessed that the kids turned out like that. And I know that it's not just about what I did. It's that. So I just want to say that, you know, because everybody always goes, oh, you're amazing. Dad, you're the no. And if you read my book, Leader of the Pack, you're going to see I am very honest about my shortcomings as a man and as a father in there in the hopes that it sort of motivates other people. So, okay, let me pivot to your question, which is what reinventing uh, your business looks like. So when I walked into my business back in the mid 80s, we had just a few employees, like three, four employees in the business. It was family business. And our business was selling photographic supplies to small stores like film and batteries and photo, you know, related photographic accessories, some cameras and so on. And for your, you know, for your listeners, I hope most of them know what film is out there. <laughs> At least I do. <laughs> you should know, by the way, I speak a lot. And sometimes I speak in front of younger audiences and you say film and they sort of look at you like they think what? you're talking about, about the movies, you know, like you sold movies, you know, or something like that. They don't know. They don't know what it is. But right. um, so we sold film to small stores. And if you know the business history in this country, uh, small stores, like, for example, like drugstores, 80 uh, percent of film was sold through drugstores in the 70s and 80s because there was a small drugstore, you know, it was sort of a, a general store almost in every town in the country. Eventually, all of those small stores got bought up by the CVSs and the, the Duane Reeds and the Walgreens, you know, along the way. And then the Kmarts came along and the Targets came along and they started to taking down the, the, the main street stores, which were our bread and butter. And so our business really faced a challenge because those small stores went out of business. So what I ended up doing was taking our B2B model. We were a B2B company and I applied it to selling photographers. Now, photographers at that time in the 80s basically had two choices for buying their film. It was buying it from a local camera store which meant they paid retail for their film, or they bought it from their processing lab, which charged them even more than the camera store. So they were paying retail for their supplies. So I said, hey, a photographer is running a business, they should pay appropriate price. So we started selling wholesale to photographers, but applying a very high level of service. Photographer needed film for his shoot on the weekend, he could order on a Wednesday, get it on a Thursday or a Friday, and you know we were really good at that. Within a very few years, we had transformed our B2B business to almost a complete B2C business, and we became the largest seller of professional film in the country. In fact, we added on to that, we ended up selling more consumers. By the late 90s, I would say almost by the turn of the century, my company had a five share of the film sold in the country. 5% of all the rolls of film sold in the United States went through my company. Oh, wow. wow. And, you know, you can, you can sort of lay in, you know, my divorce happened a little before that. We were in really the bottom hit, you know, before that and so on. And that really carried us for, you know, several years along the way. And then the digital revolution came and digital cameras came about. Yep. So our five share, you know, at the turn of the century turned into nothing by 2007 or eight when film sales completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. And the problem with film sales completely disappearing was digital cameras were a ubiquitous sale. Everybody sold them. You could buy it anywhere. Best Buy, you could buy it. I mean, there were times you could walk into small, any small store and they'd have a little digital camera display. Um, Walmart's obviously was selling. And then eventually Amazon came along and started selling cameras. And the profit margin on cameras was much less because film was like the razor blade and the razor. You know, the razor is where you make the money. You give people the, the holder and, you know, that's the whole razor blade theory in the industry. Right. 
which also is being under attack right now, by the way, as a side note. You know, Gillette thought they had the, the lock on this, and then you have all these companies, the Dollar Shave Company and so on coming right. in. Yeah, right, right. So, right. you know, it's the same thing happening to them. So when the digital revolution came along, what happened was all the remaining, first of all, photographers started coming under attack because Uncle Joe could get a digital camera and start taking pictures. So the person who would do a wedding, now Uncle Joe was doing the wedding and the bar to entry was much lower. In addition to that, the digital camera was was available everywhere. The rest of the camera stores essentially went out of business, went from 10,000 to a few thousand to a few hundred. They were our customers. The small stores started going away. So our business almost collapsed again. So in 2008, when all of the camera stores essentially in New Jersey went out of business, I opened the camera store. Of course, everybody thought I was nuts because the business was tanking. You know, camera stores were going out left and right. Nobody was making money. But I had a new idea for how to run a camera store, having been in the business for a long time. It was an experiential model. We can discuss that a little bit because it really applies to other business. Matt, are you talking about a film camera store, a digital no, a camera digital, store, or a combination digital, of both? Both. But film okay. was basically gone in 2008. So it was a digital store which sold – we had we were selling 20,000 or 30,000 SKUs. Everything that an amateur to a professional photographer could use, tripods, bags, cameras mm. – accessories, all sorts of things. The photographic industry has crazy amount of SKUs. Different, you know, you have Nikon and Canon and Panasonic and, and Fuji and Minolta. And you got all of these brands at that time. So we opened the camera store, quickly progressing through. My idea worked. Within five years, we were the third largest single location store in the country. Every camera store that operates today actually has shifted their model to that model ones that's running and that are successful have shifted to that model and run. And then two and a half years ago, I sold the business. So I exited the business successfully. So for me, that's, you know, a real victory considering the, you know, the difficulties in the, in the business that we went through. Right. And so, you know, that, that ended up, I guess, with a happy ending, you'd say, you know, cause I ended up exiting. But for me, the, the business idea of taking a retail store and turning it into an experience actually is a fundamental principle that needs to be applied to retail across the country if the stores want to survive. Yeah, actually, I'm just thinking about, well, I went to art school. I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And my senior year, I decided to finally take something outside of my major because we didn't usually have time to get out of the architecture studio. And I took photography. So I don't I don't remember the appropriate name for it, but it was a super expensive camera with a super expensive lens and film. Yes. And I learned how to use it. Just don't remember the name. I'm not a photographer, people. Please don't judge me. And then, um, but the camera, the the flipper thing inside. <laughs> the shutter? The yeah, lamp. thank you. It stopped working. And I was, I loved my camera. I could take great photos with it better than I could do once I got a digital camera and I wanted it to work. But here in the Dayton area, I couldn't find a single place to get it fixed. Yeah, this, there's not, the, typically those uh, film cameras are, you know, tip, are door stoppers now. Yeah. You know, they're not worth, there's a little research, like a tiny little resurgence of film, you know, particularly like here in New York in the art community, because film does give a particular, a, I should just say a different look. It does. Than a digital digital yeah. photography. Yeah. 
and Kodak has sort of come in and out of making film. Actually, they just started, I think they just restarted remaking Ektachrome, if I, you know, slide film. Fuji uh, continues to make uh, films. Fuji's kind of the survivor. Fuji film yeah. is the survivor. They ran their company, obviously, a little better in the end. And they're the survivor. So film does around, but film cameras are, you know, certainly done. And oh, even yeah. if you look at them, smartphones today, I mean, some of the cameras that are coming out in the smartphones are just mind-bogglingly good. You know, they're software-controlled and so on. Yep. Um, my second oldest is a seventh grader now. And in sixth grade, they go on a class trip to Washington, D.C. They're not allowed to take smartphones with them, like at all. So, and we don't have, everybody in our house has smartphones. So none of us have a digital camera anymore. The ones that we did had got dropped <laughs> by the younger children. So, yes. I mean, I wasn't about to go buy a digital camera but his dad, because I, I got divorced after I moved to Ohio, his dad went and scoured all the local stores and ended up finding like the last two film cameras, disposable film cameras in our town. Uh-huh. And I was surprised that he was even able to find those two. But it's, it's interesting how you made the shift. My first round of entrepreneurship should have never, well, I guess it should have been taken because I learned a lot of lessons, but it was a scrapbooking e-commerce shop. And once in a while, the tools that I would use would break. So I would go into a, look, a big scrapbook store near me. Yes. And it was actually connected to a camera shop. Yeah, yeah, because they tried to uh, – scrapbooking was at one point an attempt to bring traffic back into the store. I yeah. think a few places do it successfully, but not many. It's really not the um, – it's not the key to success in a camera store. I, you know, it's obviously some places have done it. A few, a handful have done it successfully. Well, to be totally honest, the scrapbooking side was always busier than the camera side. Mm -hmm. and, right. and now they're both gone. And, right. and the reason that I really shouldn't have, besides all the valuable lessons that I learned, I wasn't even a scrapbooker. So it's hard to be passionate about what you're selling when you don't care about what you're selling. Okay, so this, by the way, is a really interesting thing that you say, because when I was running the distribution company, I didn't care so much about photography. I liked it well enough. You know, I thought some of the gadgetry was cool and so on, but I was selling boxes, you know, and it was really about the marketing. I knew how to market. Marketing is kind of my thing. I knew how to market the company and, you know, get customers and run the business and operations and so on. You know, but when I opened the camera store, remember I said to you, it was about creating an experience. The experience that we created in the store was the store became about photography, not about selling cameras. So when you came into our store, first of all, it was beautiful. It looked like a jewelry store with big high ceilings and bright lights. All the people that worked in the store were photographers. They weren't salespeople. They were photographers. And the jewel of our store and this was the big, the big pivot was we created an education program in the store, which meant we taught photography. We taught photography from beginners all the way to professionals. And that photography, the concept of bringing photography teaching of school into the store was the big idea that I had. And that transformed the store. At the height of my store, a few years in, I used to have a thousand people a month run through my classes. You cannot get a camera store other than maybe one of the two big New York camera stores to get a thousand people through your store every month. And it changes the relationship with the customer because the customer is now being taught by you instead of being sold by you and then parting with their money. 
It creates a totally different environment. You also look authoritative. But to your point, when we opened that university, I said to myself, I think I better learn photography. Because if I'm going to be the chief and I'm going to be promoting photography education, I better learn it. So I kind of on my own, you know, I knew stuff already, learned. I sat in when we had, you know, very famous photographers in, learned myself. I went shooting, shooting myself. I eventually started teaching classes myself. And when I sold my business, I am now a photographer. I am now a brand ambassador for Lumix, which is Panasonic's brand of cameras. And I'm a professional photographer myself. So your point of not having passion for the product you sell is fundamental, actually, to success. If you don't believe in it, you don't love it, the likelihood of you succeeding is low. Oh, my gosh. Amen. Yes. I ended up going 100000 in debt out of inventory in my garage. And yep. I never, until after I closed down the shop, actually because of my own divorce, I never even touched any of my own supplies. I mean, I, I seriously, I had, I had maxed out every single one of my credit cards to purchase this inventory. But I can imagine if I had just taken a couple hours a week and created a layout and given tutorials on how to do this layout, because I am an artist. I mean, I, I would have been good at it. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Then I could have been selling kits and total experiences and scrapbooking workshop weekends and, and all this, but it never, the experience didn't even occur to me. And I have to say that the experience itself still didn't occur to me in my business until just in the past couple of weeks. Like I've always wanted my clients to know that they're appreciated and that I care about what they're doing. But actually, so as I already said, listeners, we're recording this on a Friday. On Monday, I had a chat. And as a result of that chat, we, my team is creating our client experience expectation sheet for us. Because what is the experience that we expect ourselves to provide to the clients? And also, what, what experience do we expect to have ourselves with each client? Because I don't know about you, Matt, but there are some clients. I mean, I know you were, whether it's B2B or B2C, there are just some people that you learn that you don't want to work with. I couldn't agree more. So what's the expectation both ways? And when it's not being met one way or the other, what are we going to do about it? Because it's like there's that expression, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, it's just sort of the same in my business. When I'm not, when I'm not happy with a client, it's going to be pretty difficult. That's right. I, I completely agree. Completely agree. What are some of the – now, I love the teaching – and I love that you immersed yourself in the profession, but what other pointers would you have for the experience model that you could teach the listeners about? Like, what would you say that they need to consider as far as experience goes when they're building their businesses? Okay, so one of the things that I always, one of the cliches that I always like to whip out is the devil is in the details. So you, you didn't know where I was going with that when I said devil. But the devil oh, is I love in, it though. The devil is in the details. So when I built my store and I was rebuilding this business, every detail mattered to me. The way stuff was merchandised, the way every display looked, the color of the paint on the wall, even the smell in the store. I put a coffee bar in the store so the store should smell good. I have this thing when you walk into a retail store and it doesn't smell right, 
Smell is an important part of the human experience. It has to smell right, look right, feel right. Every item has to be priced. Every item has to be aligned on the shelf. You have to have all of your people looking good, groomed, combed, properly displayed. You have to greet the customer right. The front door glass has to be clean. So, you know, I can go on and on and on. And even from the more detailed operations, the way the checkout process goes, the way your website looks, every detail matters. Uh, one of my dad's favorite expressions was everything is cumulative. So when you are an entrepreneur and you are building a business, do not let stuff go. Pay attention to every detail as best as you can humanly possible. I'm not saying to stay up, you know, all night long to, you know, fix little things. You have to use some sense about it, you know, because not everything can be, we can't all be perfectionists. You can drive yourself crazy. By the way, I used to drive myself crazy. <laughs> Me too. Right? Okay. But yeah. so, you know, without being a neurotic perfectionist, your goal should be perfection because you won't get there anyway. And if you do that, things just work better. Mm -hmm. It just creates a better environment, whether you're in a retail business, a B2B business, it doesn't matter. Every detail matters. If your invoices have type on them that's hard to read, that's no good. I can go on. I mean, I could spend literally the next hour going over things that irritated me if they weren't perfect. Oh, and my if, gosh. If you apply that kind of thinking, I'd walk in my warehouse. If the warehouse wasn't swept and clean at the end of the day, if they didn't do that, actually, we did it in the morning, I should say. If it wasn't done first thing in the morning, I'd be I why not? Why isn't that done? Why isn't it clean? Why isn't that? You know, and that's and even detail to your employees. So what does that mean? That means every person who worked for me. But at one point, I had 120 people working for me. I knew every one of them and every one of their personal stories so that I could when I interacted with them, they knew that I knew about them and they felt special. So you even pay attention in detail to your employees. They're the most important asset that you have. They you treat are. Them, Absolutely. You treat them like you're, they're your kids. Yeah. yeah. So every aspect of a business is important. You don't let anything go and you work tirelessly to make sure that it's right. That would sort of be my big tip because people somehow think, oh, I'm going to run a business. I don't have to listen to anybody. I can do it my own way. No, the way to do it is the best way is the perfect way. So my husband quit his job about three months ago so that he could focus on his dream career. And before he quit his job, he was working in retail. Listeners, my apologies if you've heard this before, but he was a retail manager. And in his shop, it didn't operate like this, but in the shop in our town, which is not the one that he managed, he would walk in there, a customer would walk in behind him, and the employees had a game that the last one to touch their nose had to work with the customer. No way. Yeah. And they still had a job. Now, I got to tell you, when, when I was married to my ex and our first was born, we played that game because the, the last one to touch their nose had to change the dirty diaper. But you can't tell me that the customers didn't realize what's going on. The one that didn't touch their nose has to work with me. Do I really want to be here? I mean, I just sort of like... I mean, my people in my store wouldn't even do that because you know where that actually fa it fails on two levels. One, it tells me that they have not hired right. I, I consult oh, they companies. definitely did not. I consult companies a lot. And one of the biggest complaints I always get from CEOs when they come and they say, look, I'm not really happy with the way our staff is. What can we do to improve our staff? I almost always give them this cliche response, which is hire better. 
And so the kind of individual that would actually do that in a professional environment is even though you could theoretically blame management and say no one's supervising, no one's paying, that is true. But ultimately, the kind of person that would do that in a store should never be in a store. Oh, absolutely. They actually started offering incentive, like weekly bonuses to employees who showed up every day on time for a whole week. And my point, and it was my husband's point as well, and he tried to bring it up numerous times. This is part of the reason why he left, was if they don't care enough about the job to be here on time every day, then they shouldn't be here because there's like thousands of other people in the town who would love the job. And they would actually care about it. I mean, uh, giving a reward to employees that show up on time and everything is great. It's just not for not for a week. Right. <laughs> I think the, I think the standard maybe should be a tad higher. Well, let's. I mean, let's think about our kids when they go to school. It's a perfect attendance award for the whole year, and the kids who win that. I mean. All they get is a piece of paper that says perfect attendance, but they're stoked. You bet. I mean, let's see perfect attendance. Yes, you know, paid time off or vacation time, that's one thing. But that's planned in advance. That's not a no no call, no show. So let's give awards to people who show up every day on time for a whole year. No complaints. You know, no fingers to the nose. I mean, I've had team members in the past who my clients have written to me and said, I don't feel like they cared. You know, I get a half, I'm not going to say it. It starts with an A. I get a half A response whenever I send an email or if I send a text, I just really, I never get a response. And that's not the experience that I want the clients to get. But on the flip side, you know, because we're in a service-based industry and we're doing marketing for people, they also have to not expect us to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning when they have an emergency or a scarcity mode attack. I think you understand what I'm trying to say. We're not going to be responding at 3 o'clock in the morning. So one of my biggest, it might even be my biggest pet peeve in running a business, is when my staff would not respond timely to people. It used to, I mean, I got to the point where I would really want to be copied on lots of, so that they knew that I was watching. I hate this no response kind of thing. And in fact, I would take it positively. Many times I would monitor our company's social media and I would respond to customers at at odd hours, like at late at night or on weekends and so on, and then copy the entire company on what I did. Because I really, as a leader, and this is really another tip. You know, and this one many people have heard before, but it's definitely worth repeating is your employees will do as you do. So if you as a leader of your company, you need to set the example. Yep. Lead never, by ask example. Somebody to do, never ask somebody to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. And for me, I tried to be a customer service leader, which meant that even though I was the grand pooba, I never fear meeting with a customer discussing their problems, helping them out, serving them. You do whatever it takes to satisfy the customer. And if you create that environment, if you create that culture in your company, things are going to happen. And certainly responding timely and accurately and doing what you say when you respond to. In other words, writing them back and say, I'll have an answer for you by 11 in the morning, and then you don't, that's also not acceptable. So those are really important parts of a successful business. Yes. And I have to say, though, Matt, that's taken some time for me. Like, even the simple act of delegating, the pillars of our business are systems, support, and self-care. 
And I want my team to understand that it's okay to say, I don't have enough time for this. We need to get somebody else in because I'm learning that I need to say that too, or else I'm going to be up at all hours and not seeing my kids. I agree. I, I agree with that. My only point is to just, if you can't, then you have to let people know you need help. You Communication can't just, is key. Yep. Yeah. You can't just not answer because the customer doesn't know this. Right. They just think you don't care. They just think you don't care. You have a customer yep. or a client. They, you know, you don't answer them. Even if you, even sometimes just the touch to say, Hey, I'm overloaded today, particularly if it's not an emergency, can I get back to you tomorrow or the next day? Can Jane get back to you? You know, I'm overloaded the next couple of days. Would you mind, you know, even just a quick note like that, almost anybody can do that really fast. And if you do that with a customer, it changes everything. So I do want to ask about that though. Seeing as you successfully exited this business, I am trying ever so diligently and I don't like the word trying, I just need to let you know that, to stay out of my inbox because I realize that I've become a slave to my inbox and it can easily eat up my whole day if I'm not careful. So I'm trying to only go in a couple times a day. But in the meantime, there's clients who might have emailed in the morning and not get it, you know, I might not see it until two o'clock in the afternoon. Where do you think the balance comes in there? I think, you know, it's funny because I actually wrote an article, I believe, I'm trying to think, I think I either wrote it for the Good Men Project or Entrepreneur Magazine about an executive here, uh, the CEO of Tommy John Men's Underwear, <laughs> of all things. I had interviewed him, wrote an article about it because he doesn't answer his emails till like some you know time later. And he does this. He, he, he completely... Like he doesn't, he doesn't answer his emails between X hours of the day. He sets two hours aside or it's, I don't remember because it was a while, a couple of years ago, but he has a procedure, like a controlled procedure. And he finds that that works for him. There are some people like yourself that you feel like you get drawn into your inbox. So you have to come up with a, a different kind of system in order to manage it. In my case, I have a little bit of ADHD, maybe more than a little bit. And so my method has always been to do it now. It's one of my secrets of success. When I, I coach people and when I teach people, a lot of people come to me and they say, help me be more organized. And typically, one of the things I find for people who are not organized is they keep putting too many things off. So the putting stuff off is okay if it's done in a controlled way when you know when you're going to get to it. So the answer, I guess, to your question is it's a very personal question. For some people, it's better to just set aside a dedicated time maybe once a day, for some people, maybe once in a while, maybe to limit the time, maybe to get help. For some people, it's to do it right away. And for me, I prefer that latter method. I prefer to answer emails immediately, get on them immediately and get them done, get them done, get them done. So I think it's really a personal question. That's really the answer. I don't think there's any one right answer to that. I think whatever works for you, but you should have a system and stick to it. You actually just solved two big questions in my business for me because I have a new assistant starting in three days and we were trying to figure out exactly where she was going to start. I have a standard operating procedure set up for how to manage my inbox, but everybody's been too busy. That's why she had to come in because we needed her to help relieve some of the pain, but that's where she's going to start. Exactly, exactly right. So you set up a system and, but the key is to stick to the system, obviously, you know, not to, to stick to it if it doesn't work, but you stick to the system and then you do that. And then that relieves the stress and gets the work done. 
Yeah. Even if she just responds, hey, Kim's in a meeting. I've let her know about your question and we'll get back to you in an hour or so. And she's responsible for that. Oh, my gosh. Because right. it, way, changes, it changes everything. It will change so much because, I mean, I, I can think of one client who I love dearly. And she's just like, even if you could just take two seconds. And unfortunately, there's just those days that I feel like I don't have those two seconds to take to say, I got it. I'll respond momentarily. And then all of a sudden, it's four days later. And my, I want my inbox to always be under 50 emails, see it on one page, don't have to scroll, but that's not where it's been. And just those little things will up the client experience because actually the, the chat I had, listeners, by the way, I want you to share your ahas and your just your big learning moments that you're getting off of this episode with us at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP533. Uh, you can leave a comment just below the show notes. But the episode was with Stacey Brown Randall, episode 521, and she was talking about how to get referrals without even asking. And I'm sure you learned with your film store, with your film company, and then when, it, when you transferred into cameras, and then with the training and everything, your biggest referrals came without asking because you provided such an extreme, extremely awesome client experience that they didn't have a choice but to refer people to you. Okay, boy, you really hit the nail on the head. So the secret to sauce, the success of our store was the fact that 80% of our new business came by referral. Without that, there is no way in a low margin business like the photographic business where you're running low double digit margins on an overall basis, try to run a retail store on 12 points of margin, go for it. Pay rent, pay your employees, pay all of those things. And then have an advertising budget, which is 3 or 4%. So because you didn't have the margin to advertise, the only way to do it was to really drive through referrals and free social media, which is really a pseudo referral method anyway, because you're basically engaging people in discussion and positive discussion about your business. And so that referral, that creating that experience and referral is absolutely the key. Because when those customers walk in the store, they're much less adversarial. They've already been recommended by one of their peers. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I am loving this entire conversation. But now you have me curious about one big thing. What are we going to learn when we read your book? Oh, so one of the... I'm sorry, that came out of... No, it's fine. For me, it's one of the nice things about, you you know, you so people ask, you know, when you write a book, people always come up to you and they go, yeah, I want to write my book. You know, and I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. You have no idea how painful it is to write a book, how complicated the process is to get it published, to do all. I said, don't do it. But and it took me several years to do it and get it out there. And I actually ended up doing really well. The book ended up being a bestseller, number one seller in new releases under uh, self-help books. I was ahead of everybody. It really, um, really a rewarding moment. But the most rewarding thing for me are the 115 four-star reviews that I got where people have written how the book has changed their life. The book is a story of how no matter what happens to you in your life, there is a path out. And here are the ways that you need to do it. And that's ultimately the lesson in the book. The book is a memoir because it's the story, you know, partial story of my life, but it's really a self-help book. And so you're going to walk away from this book of a better understanding of difficult relationships, of abusive relationships, of how to pull yourself out of really difficult spots in your life 
in a way that's positive and rewarding, satisfying, and will eventually lead to success. So to me, that's the big lesson. It's not just about raising five kids. It's not just about running a business. It's really about overcoming those challenges that you have in your life in a way that's real. You know, I don't have 12 step methods in there. I have real life experiences that I share and real life things that many, many people come to. And and like I said, when I read the reviews and people tell me the book changed my life, it helped me do this. It helped me do that. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. We really needed to do this. Parents come to me and say, thank you for writing the book because I talk about parenting in a way that's really meaningful. Hmm. So do you still tear up and get goosebumps when you get new reviews? For me, it's a sense of it's a sense of satisfaction. I think that I got one, quite frankly, two or three days ago that was really it particularly touched me because it was from another single dad where he talked about how heartbroken he was over being separated from his daughter when she was young. And he talked about reading my book and how it gave him encouragement. And he went back into the fight and he did some of the things that we talked about. And it ended up with his daughter moving in with him and living with him and how rewarding, you know, so when you read something like that, it's really like, if just that alone, it was worth writing the book. Wow. That's amazing. Listeners, I want you to know that there will be a link to the book in the show notes, just in case you're driving or trying not to cook dinner, which again, you can find at thekimsutton.com forward slash pp533. Matt, I'm excited to read it. Full confession, I have not had a moment to do so yet, but I'm excited to read it. I mean, you have five children. So certainly my story of my five children, even though I call myself, the book is called Leader of the Pack, you know, how a single dad of five led his kids, his business and himself from disaster to success. It is for any parent and particularly a parent of five children. You have to do it because you're going to love the kids stories in there, by the way. You know how I I talk about some of the things I did with them. You're going to be laughing. Oh, I'm sure I will be. I just want to share one story and then I want to find out where listeners can find you online. But I have another member of the podcasting community. I don't know if I've talked about him before. Jay Rook, host of No Pain, No Gain. I'll put a link in the show notes. He just posted, we're just passing Halloween right now. He has twins who are just a couple months younger than mine. And he has the same dilemma of all these toys that are basically landmines on the floor. Maybe you understand the experience. And what he decided for Halloween was that he was going to take all these annoying toys, all the extras, and put them out in the driveway. And when kids came trick-or-treating, they could only take a piece of candy if they also took a toy with them. And I thought it was hilarious. Like, I'm That is an amazing idea. That is just amazing. I love that idea. I'm seriously thinking about it for next year. <laughs> Matt, where can listeners find you online, connect, and get to know more about you? Okay, I'm easy to find online. I'm a personal branding guy. You know, I write and speak on personal branding. So I was an early adopter of social media, meaning that my handles everywhere are M Sweetwood. M-S-W-E-E-T-W-O-O-D on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. My website is msweetwood.com. And so you can find me anywhere. And I love when people tweet at me, write at me, Facebook at me. I respond to everybody. I told you, remember I said to you, I respond right away. Well, I do. If you get me on social media, I will promise to write you back. And certainly, you know, check out my book, Leader of the Pack. I know you'll have a link at the end here, but it's available on Amazon. You can go to my website and find the link too. Amazing. Listeners, I just want to remind you how much your comments and your reviews do mean to us. So whether it's 
leaving a review on iTunes for this podcast or going to Amazon and leaving a review after you read Matt's book. Just take two minutes out of your day when you finish listening or reading something and do it because you are changing somebody's life, even though you may think that they get a lot already. I can't tell you, I mean, just from my podcast alone, how much every single review means to me. And you've already heard how much every single review means to Matt. So take those two minutes. Amen. Amen on the reviews. Amen. Matt, do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you could share with listeners? Yeah. And and I think that this comes really from my book and from my business life. And this is something that I say, it's my own personal motto. In life, you can't have everything that you want. You can't. You can't just, you know, I want this, I want that, I want this. You, You can't. But if there is something that you want badly enough, if there is something you need to have, whether it's you're struggling with your child, you're struggling with a relationship, you're struggling in business, making whatever it is. If you put your laser focus on it and make that your cause in life, you can have it. So I always say to my somebody when they say, I can't do something or I, I want to do this, I always ask them the following question, which you should ask yourself, which is how badly do you want it? If you want something badly enough, you can make anything happen for yourself. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level. 